Yeah, before you're seated this morning, if you would pray with me the Lord's Prayer on the screen this morning. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. You can be seated this morning. So we continue to work our way through that prayer this morning. This morning we are looking at the idea of praying for pardon and looking at verse 12 especially. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. You may have heard the saying that goes like this, hurt people, hurt people. We've all seen that. We've all felt it. We've all lived it. We've all been the ones doing the hurting. We've been the ones being hurt. And so we know that when we've been wronged by someone else, our instinct is to protect ourselves and others. Often that takes the form of us retaliating against others or maybe even retaliating against someone who we suspect might be the next one who would hurt us. It's true that hurt people hurt people. And that doesn't absolve us of any responsibility for our hurtful actions. But if you look at the lives of those who commit offenses against us, whether they're big or whether they're the most terrible atrocities, there is usually some hurt or pain that is driving those actions. And there's a belief there that whatever I'm about to do in that moment, regardless of the harm that it's going to cause, it's justified because of what has been done to me, that somehow it will make it better or make me feel better at least. Hurt people hurt people. That is the reality of this sin-infested, fallen, and broken world in which we live. But in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is intent on showing us a different reality. He's intent on showing us an alternative to the way that we have lived in this world. He's showing us life in the new kingdom that he is initiating that looks very, very differently. June 17th, 2015, was the day that Dylan Roof entered a Bible study meeting at Emmanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina, where he was welcomed there with open arms into the fellowship of that group. He engaged with some of the conversation around the scriptures that night, but when the group began to pray, that was when he stood up and began to unleash round after round, killing nine members of the church, six women and three men. And the days that followed that horrific act of murder, Roof was arrested and details began to emerge of his history of white supremacist statements and hate-fueled beliefs, even him admitting that he'd hoped that his actions would have started an all-out race war. Two days after the shooting, June 19th, 2015, at a bond hearing for Roof, he was confronted directly by survivors of the shooting and families of the victims, just two days later. And through the tears of their anguish and through their anger, one by one, they stood up, looked at him, and expressed their forgiveness, their desire to forgive Nadine Collier was the daughter of Ethel Lance, who was 70 years old at the time of her, her murder. She spoke directly to Ruth, saying, I forgive you. You took something very precious from me. I will never talk to her again. I will never, ever hold her again, but I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. Over and over, family members stood and pointed Ruth to the mercy of God, pleading with him to repent of his sin and to receive God's forgiveness in Jesus. 
How is that possible? Hurt people hurt people. I'll be honest with you, I don't know if I would respond with the same grace and self-control that those survivors and family members did on that day. But I do know that they show us something that Jesus was telling us here, a principle found in this prayer and throughout the story of Scripture that, yes, hurt people hurt people, but that truth doesn't have the final say in our lives and in this world. It's not the only reality that is at work around us, even if it is the one that we see most prevalently in our lives. The principle of this prayer that we see this morning is this, forgiven people, forgive people. Jesus taught us to pray and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And is the start to that petition there, and it connects it to the one that came before, the one we looked at last week, where Jesus taught us to pray for provision every day, and it showed us it wasn't just a one-time need, but that we would pray every single day for our needs that day, showing us that we don't just rely upon God to help us with the startup costs of our lives. We need His involvement and His provision every single day, and so lest we would become prideful and ignore our need for God, Jesus teaches us to pray for our daily bread. And here he's showing us that that need continues when it comes to asking for forgiveness from our sins. This isn't a call for us to pray every single day for God to grant us forgiveness and justification for our sins like he did the first time we prayed that prayer when we repented and believed in Jesus. But this is a call from Jesus that recognizes that throughout the life of a disciple, there will continue to be sin. There will continue to be stumbles. There will be things that we think and say and do that go against God's design, things that hinder our fellowship with God. If we're in Jesus Christ, if we have been saved and we belong to God through Jesus, those stumbles don't change our relationship with God. We remain his child who he's welcomed into his family. It doesn't change the foundation of our relationship, but it can hinder our fellowship with them. It's the same as the relationship between any loving parent and their child. The sin of the child against the parent doesn't end the parent-child relationship, but it can hinder fellowship in a way that has serious consequences for everyone involved. And that is the forgiveness that Jesus is teaching us to seek here. It isn't that we need to be saved again every time we sin or that we need to be rebaptized every time we stumble. It's that the maintenance of any relationship involves a fallen person involving a fallen person like us requires ongoing responsibility and forgiveness, whether it's between two fallen people and our relationships with one another, or ourselves, a fallen person, and a perfect and holy God. All of us have sinned against God, and we all stand in need of His grace. It's His grace that welcomes us in, and it's His grace that keeps us in the faith, and it's His grace that transforms us from one degree of glory to another to become more and more like Jesus. And that's ultimately what I think is what's going on between, beneath Jesus' call to pray here. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. It's about God's grace that not only reconciles us to God vertically, but also transforms our relationships with one another horizontally in a way that we can't separate. Saying that forgiven people forgive people is the same as saying that Christ followers will become more and more like Christ. It's not a legalistic decree where Jesus is telling us that our forgiveness toward others is being measured 
so that the same standard can then be applied toward us, right? If you, believe, if you forgive other people 80% of the time, Jesus will forgive you 80% of the time. That's not what he's telling us here. Jesus is telling us and showing us that we can't harbor bitterness and unforgiveness in our hearts toward another person without it infecting our fellowship with God and with others. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 30 through 32, Paul wrote these words saying, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Though the direction of this statement is horizontal rather than vertical like the Lord's Prayer, the principle is the same. Forgiven people will forgive people. It's about us becoming more and more like Jesus, like our Father in heaven, which is why the next line in Ephesians 5.1 is, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Back in March, we looked together at the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew chapter 18. And in that story, Jesus told of a man who was forgiven of a debt that was just of unimaginable proportions, one so large that he would never have been able to pay it back in the course of his lifetime. But then that same servant went out and found another servant who owed him a relatively small or minute amount, and he threateningly demanded repayment, and he ultimately threw the other servant into prison. And Jesus makes it clear that there as well as here that a heart changed by the mercy and grace of God is a heart that will extend that same type of mercy and grace to others. It won't be perfectly, but the trajectory of our lives transformed by grace should be that we are people who extend God's grace to others. And so we see the principle, forgiven people forgive people. So this morning, follower of Jesus, child of God, I want this morning for you to just take a moment here and hear the proclamation of God's posture toward you, his posture, posture toward those who fear him and who have placed their faith in Jesus. Psalm 103, I think, makes it pretty plain to us. Hear these words from the psalm, beginning in verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Child of God, that is your father's posture toward you this morning. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so in light of that this morning, I want to invite you to join me in a time of prayer. And this isn't going to be a call to morbid introspection or an invitation to wallow in the shame of regret this morning, but I want to invite you to spend a moment asking God to search your heart and to search your mind and to search your life, confessing your sin to him, repenting of wrong ways of thinking, acting, and speaking, and thanking him for his mercy and grace toward us in Jesus, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so admittedly, this is a little bit different than what we normally do. This message isn't over, and so it's not time for the invitation, and so the band doesn't need to come back up just yet and we're not going to start singing here in just a moment, but we're talking about prayer. And so 
before we continue any further, I'd like for us to just take a couple moments to pray in light of God's desire to forgive those who turn to him in faith. And so would you begin just by confessing your sin to the Lord this morning, repenting where needed, and thanking God for his kindness lavished upon you in Jesus Christ. And this morning, would you ask God to reveal to you any bitterness and unforgiveness you are harboring against someone else and ask him to begin the work of softening your heart toward that person, that it would be a clear reflection of his heart toward you. Amen. The principle is clear. Forgiven people forgive people. But embedded in that principle is the reason that we struggle to realize that reality in its fullness in our lives. It's that we are forgiven people because we are a people who need forgiveness. We're people who need forgiveness because we are sinful and broken people living in a sinful and broken world. And so while the principle is true, it doesn't automatically produce the reality of forgiveness in our hearts and in our lives. In fact, the sister of one of those victims of that horrific shooting in Emmanuel AME Church said, for me, I'm a work in progress and I acknowledge I'm very angry. Before she would go on to say, we're the family that love built. We have no room for hate, so we have to forgive. I want to make something very clear this morning that we are not a switch that can be flipped. Our hearts don't generally work that way. God is capable of doing that, but forgiveness doesn't usually happen in our lives that way. The journey from the reality of hurt people, hurting people to our reality where forgiven people forgive people isn't always a straight line. Each and every one of us are a work in progress. And many of you have been harmed by others in ways that nobody even knows or could ever fully comprehend. And so what I want to say to you this morning is that extending forgiveness toward those who have hurt you or will hurt you, it's not a call to minimize or ignore your pain or the harm that they've caused you. It isn't a call to release those who have hurt you from any accountability or justice. Those who have committed crimes or abuse don't get a free pass to continue hurting you and hurting others. 
If you find yourself in a cycle of abuse, Jesus isn't calling you to pretend that everything is okay. He would invite you to ask for help. And so this call to forgive doesn't release those who have harmed you from the burden of any consequences or of the judgment of God. It releases you from the burden of bitterness, though. It releases you from the consuming power of anger and rage. Romans 12, 19 through 21 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. A desire for revenge will eat you alive. And it's not necessary, not because what happened to you doesn't matter or because justice doesn't matter. It's not necessary because God promises to make all things right, either at the judgment of those who have wronged you or at the judgment of sin that was poured out on Jesus on the cross. And so the call for us to extend forgiveness, it is a radical call to extend the same radical and welcoming forgiveness that Jesus has extended already to us. Forgiven people forgive people. But when it comes to living in light of that new reality of Christ's kingdom, we're all a work in progress. And so before we close this morning, I'd like for us to turn our attention, our sight this morning from the principle that forgiven people forgive people to the process we find laid out in Psalm 130. If you want to turn there, we're going to to spend our last few minutes together there in Psalm 130. As we pray, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, Psalm 130 shows us how that prayer might sound in this ongoing process of transformation and our forgiveness of others, a process that isn't a one-time checklist where we say, I've done that, I've forgiven them, that's over, but an ongoing rhythm in our lives. And so let's look at that together. Psalm 130 begins this way, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Praying for pardon, the process, it begins when you confess your need. That's the pattern we see being said in Psalm 130. Praying for pardon doesn't start with excuses or explanations of the sins that we've committed. It doesn't start by trying to climb our way out of the hole that we've dug for ourselves. It starts with recognizing the depths to which our sin plunges us to a point of desperation where we can do nothing to save ourselves except cry out to the Lord. We confess our need and even the audacity of our cries that we who have rebelled against a perfect and holy God, we who have sinned against him are crying out to him as the only one who can redeem us and rescue us from the mess that we've made. His mercy is our only hope. If he was to keep a record of our sins and he required us to pay for those in full, none of us could stand before him. Sin isn't just the problem of the murderer or the criminal. It's the problem for each and every one of us, even those who gather with God's people to worship and to sing. And so the process of forgiveness begins with us confessing our own deep and abiding need for God's forgiveness, not just the need of others for forgiveness. Confessing your need leads us to what's next. Continuing there in verse four, it says, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. 
Confessing your need is the beginning of the process, but it can't be the end. It isn't the end. Confessing your need to God doesn't leave you to wallow in shame and regret. Confessing your need is the path to what's next in the process of forgiveness, and that is to trust God's promise. The Bible is filled with promises of God to forgive those who come to him in faith. And so the psalmist cries with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. God can be worshiped and served in faith today because he is true to his word. The psalmist is declaring here what John would write in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is what God has promised to do, and he's demonstrated himself to be a God who's worthy of our faith and our hope. So to say, in his word, I hope, as the psalmist does, is different from placing your hope in my word or me placing my hope in your word. Trusting God's promise to forgive is us waiting on something that is guaranteed to happen, something more certain even than the sun rising tomorrow morning. The night watchman the psalmist writes about would hold watch until morning came. That was their job. They were waiting for morning and then their job was done. And that's what trusting God's promise to forgive is like. It's waiting. Even through stumbling and sin on God to complete his work in us, work that is just as certain to be completed as the sun rising in the morning. And so confess your need, trust God's promise. And then the psalm concludes beginning in verse 7, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the steadfast Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. The process we see here is clear. Confess your need, trust God's promise, and then extend forgiveness. And remember, this isn't a one-time process that we go through. It's ongoing. It's a rhythm of life in a fallen world where we're confessing our need, waiting on the Lord, and extending forgiveness to others. That looks like us extending our forgiveness to others, not holding on in bitterness to sins committed against us. But it also looks like us announcing the good news of forgiveness that is available in Jesus Christ. Our lives should display it, but our lips should also declare it. Hope is found in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love. With him there is plentiful redemption, the psalm says. God's not stingy with his love toward us. He's not stingy with his grace. That's why Paul writes of the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. There are, in our world right now, a lot of shortages that are going on. Right? Everywhere you go, you can find another one. There's apparently shortages of cars at times of different items that we might want at the grocery store. Thankfully, we're past the worst of the toilet paper shortage, it seems. But in a lot of cases, when we dig in behind what's going on with those shortages, we're told it isn't actually a problem of the supply itself or that there aren't enough of those items in existence. A lot of the time, the problem is that there's a bottleneck somewhere in the distribution process, it's in the shipping somewhere, or it's in the logistics somewhere where there aren't enough workers or there aren't enough transportation. And so that it creates a ripple effect that is felt by the consumer. The same is true with forgiveness. God's grace is not in short supply. There's plenty of it. We've got plenty of it. He has poured it out upon us in abundance, plentifully. But the problem can be in the distribution. It can be when God's grace and forgiveness is poured out on us so that we 
would announce his grace and extend his forgiveness to others, but instead we try to hoard God's grace for ourselves as if it's possible that God's grace is going to dry up or if there's, as if there's not enough to go around. But he's poured out his grace upon us in abundance that we would be able to announce, like the psalmist did, that there is plentiful redemption, that there is forgiveness available freely given for all who would place their faith in Jesus. The principle this morning is that forgiven people forgive people, but the process, it isn't always so clean in our lives because we are people ourselves who are in need of forgiveness. Right? We can find a way to confess our need, receive God's promise of forgiveness for ourselves, and then react to the sins of others with judgment and condemnation rather than with grace and forgiveness. Right? We can do that, can't we? It doesn't make sense, but that's because even our responses to sin can be shaped by our own sinful attitudes and our own sinful motives. But when we find ourselves in that place of unforgiveness and festering bitterness in our heart, what usually doesn't work is us condemning one another for not being more forgiving, saying, I can't believe you wouldn't forgive. Shame doesn't usually bring about change in us any more than it does in others. In fact, Scripture tells us that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. So this morning, if you've received the forgiveness of Jesus and find yourself struggling to forgive someone who has wronged you, my encouragement to you this morning is to begin this process again. I don't know what they did. Maybe they did something. Maybe they didn't do something. Maybe they said something. Maybe they didn't say something. I don't know. But start by confessing your need, not theirs. And then trust God's promise. Promise to forgive those who believe in Jesus, his promise to make all things right, and then extend forgiveness to others, forgiving them yourself and announcing the plentiful redemption that is available through the love of Jesus Christ. Forgiven people, forgive people. Let's be that kind of people, church. This morning, though, if you've never received the forgiveness Jesus has secured for you, then I want to take a moment to extend that offer to you this morning. Truth is that you have sinned against a holy God and are in need of his forgiveness. We all are. With no hope to repair our brokenness, no way to mend our accounts on our own, but God so loved the world that he sent his son Jesus so that anyone who believes in him can have our sins forgiven, and we can be welcomed into God's family as his children. That is the forgiveness that's available to you this morning. God isn't looking at you and saying this morning in forgiveness, okay, we're good, now you can go on your way, get, get out of my sight. No, he's looking at you in forgiveness this morning and saying, okay, we're good, now get in here. You're a part of my family. You're my child whom I love, that is a very different reaction. It's a grace that can change our lives and transform our thinking, a grace that can cause us to respond to those who seek to do us harm in ways that look very strange to this world in which we live. To respond with kindness and compassion, even in the midst of anger and sorrow, it's a grace that can set you free from the condemnation of the sins of your past, can set you free from the bitterness that you might hold because of the sins of another. It's a grace that's offered freely to you through Jesus if you'll receive it and place your faith in him.
Heavenly Father, this morning we thank you. We come confessing our need this morning. As the psalmist said, if you were to count our sins against us, Lord, none of us could stand. But with you there is forgiveness. And so we come before you this morning, our only plea being the blood of Jesus that was shed for our sins, placing our faith in the resurrection of Jesus that secured for us victory over sin and over death. God, that transforms our hearts and our minds renews us by your spirit at work within us, Lord, making us more and more like you, making us to look more and more like Jesus, a people who are forgiven and also a people who are forgiving others. And God, we pray that you would just continue to do that work in our hearts and in our lives to make clear to us, help us to see, to to reveal to us where there is unforgiveness or there's bitterness that might be festering in our hearts and in our lives. God, that we would confess that to you, that we would bring it before you, Lord, trusting you to, trusting you, Lord, to bring justice, trusting you, Lord, to, to pour out your mercy. God, we pray this morning that there's anyone in this room who are watching us with us online this morning who's never placed their faith in Jesus and received this forgiveness that we're talking about this morning. I had to pray this morning that you would move, that you would draw near to them by your spirit and draw them to Christ today in faith. That they would confess that you are Lord and that in you there is forgiveness and that they're waiting on you and trusting in you with their lives from this day forward. God, we pray that you would help us as a church to, to be a people who, who make disciples, to be a people who invite others to trust in Jesus, who welcome them in just as you have welcomed us, God, with radical grace and hospitality. God, we pray these things in Jesus' name and for his glory today. Amen.